The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 1912. Italy. The Villa Mondragone. There's a private auction going on today. One of great import to the well-dressed man who peruses the items available. He's a bibliophile. The one thing he loves more in life than anything else is books. He's got a bookstore in Soho in London, and his life has been spent collecting them, selling them, archiving them, and reading them. And he's caught wind of a very particular item on the lot today that's been brought to him in Italy. He's a Lithuanian Pole by origin, although being chased out of the region for his revolutionary left-wing and liberal political views didn't help his start. Still, having studied chemistry at Moscow University and having an albeit somewhat shaky working knowledge of 18 different languages, put him in a good position to make the most of any situation. But it was a connection with one Richard Garnett, one of the curators of the British Museum, that got him to abandon his lofty goals of bringing revolution to the Russian Empire and its satellites, and instead focus on his dreams of becoming an antiquarian bookseller, opening his first store in Soho in 1898. He settles down at his seat and prepares for the bid. It'll be a good day if he can snag this particular beauty, and he does. For a pretty penny, he comes into possession of a strange book, but he's not going to display it publicly, not just yet. With such an impressive piece, it would be the perfect jewel in the crown of his collection, but he wants some alone time with it first, so he takes it back to England, to his Soho bookshop, and he takes it to his back room, a personal office. He makes a pot of tea, puts the fire on, and gets ready to examine the text. He's been very fortunate in his past searches for rare and curious books, and this is no exception. From grimoires to ancient Bible translation, he's seen a fair few come through. But what Wilfred Voynich doesn't realize is that this book is going to change everything. Because he opens it up and immediately realizes he can't read it. That's alright, not a problem, these things happen. It's written in a language he doesn't know, so he flicks through because the book is illustrated. But the illustrations are strange. Are they plants? People? Animals? Mythology or alchemy? Some depictions seem familiar, but some seem totally alien. He can't make head nor tail of it. He decides the book must be a codex of some kind, maybe a magical or medicinal guidebook made in the Middle Ages. But as he reaches out to all of his contacts for a private translation, none of them can make sense of it either. Nobody can understand this strange book, but even more puzzling is the script used in it isn't like any other script in the world. Linguistic analysts give their all trying to crack the code, poring over the characters that reoccur, matching them to phonetic sounds trying to find their equivalents. Is it Germanic? Romance? Latin? Arabic? A Sinitic language like Chinese or one of its dialects? Mesoamerican, maybe? African? Nobody knows. And the illustrations cause even more confusion. 
Most analysts seem to be settling on the idea that it's a medical or scientific journal of some kind, the natural themes throughout being of some consistency, although exactly what I'm trying to describe is a matter of debate to this very day. Some suggest that Voynich made up the whole thing himself, but Voynich himself points to a long trail of owners of the manuscript before him, and later carbon dating shows that materials were created in the 1400s, so if it is a hoax, it's a far older hoax than Voynich himself would have been able to conjure up. He kept the book until his death from lung cancer in 1930, and after that the book switched hands. In 1969, Hans P. Krauss, an Austrian book collector often described as the most successful book collector of all time, donated it to Yale University's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, where it remains to this day. Many have tried to crack the code, and they succeeded. Also, they thought, because it would only be a matter of time before another opinion came along and declared it a hoax. Also, they thought, then it gets cracked again, and then it becomes a hoax again, and then it gets cracked again. The truly pendulous life cycle of this particular little chapter of history is what fascinates me. But this mystery, we don't know if we can ever solve it, because every time we think we're on the verge of getting it, something shifts, and we're right back where we started, like an infinite Rubik's Cube. So let's take a dive between the pages of history and attempt to explain and uncover the Voynich Manuscript. Hello and welcome to Demystified with Ashley Styles. This week we're looking at the mysterious Voynich Manuscript. I'll get into it at the end whether than considering whether this mystery can be called solved or not, because there isn't a consensus on this and it'll take the whole episode to show you why. But I think the most important thing to do right now is to instruct you, the listener, to go and look up a picture of the Voynich Manuscript, because it's going to be real difficult to paint a visual image of what it looks like, if only because it looks so unlike anything else. But for those who can't, let me try. Imagine a book, a big vellum tome, like something out of the Middle Ages. The pages of the book are covered in strange illustrations. There's lots of writing too, but it's all written in a language that seemingly doesn't exist. Characters and symbols that, whilst they appear to have some sort of internal consistency, don't line up with any script on earth. The illustrations are equally strange as they depict animals and plants that don't exist. Others depict humans, astronomical symbols and notations, and yet more subjects. The segments of the illustrations are actually used to divide the book into parts, since the text itself is, for all intents and purposes, illegible. The sections are herbs, astronomy, balneology, the study of medicinal springs, cosmology, pharmaceutics, and recipes. So it's a strange, spooky book of obscure origin written in a language that doesn't exist, with illustrations of things, some of which exist and some of which don't, made for obscure purposes. Fun! If your first thought is, hey, this sounds like BS, you'd be in good company. We'll get to the theories of it being a hoax in a minute, but from what we can tell, either it isn't, or if it is, it's impossibly elaborate. The main evidence for this is the book's vellum pages were carbon dated to between 1404 and 1438, so if it was an invention of a later prankster, they did it on a largely complete but also blank hundreds of years old vellum text. If it's a prank from the Renaissance, then it's still an important text in my book. By the way, for the record, vellum is an ancient writing surface made of calfskin as opposed to paper, considered to be superior and more expensive and lavish in days gone by. You'd find, for instance, Bibles handwritten by monks and royal decrees penned down on vellum. What we can also tell is that it's very likely European, 
from the way it's written, the fact that the writing goes left to right, the production of the tome and its loose history, it was probably made in Europe, most likely by a European. Now it's time for a good old-fashioned timeline. The first confirmed owner was Georg Baresch, an alchemist from Prague in the 17th century. He lived between 1585 and 1662. But he didn't seem to be much of a fan of it, describing it as a sphinx that took up too much needed room in his library. Sphinx here refers to an indecipherable object, I mention this because it'll come up later. Having heard that Athanasius Kircher, a Jesuit priest, had claimed to have deciphered hieroglyphics and translated them into Coptic, what they used to call Egyptian, he sent Kircher some examples to try and help translate it. Matter of fact, Kircher was almost entirely wrong in his translations, and whilst he did help the nascent field of Egyptology, we wouldn't get any accurate hieroglyphic translations until the Rosetta Stone some 200 years later. Kirsha did attempt to acquire the whole book from Barish, but failed. Upon Barish's death, ownership went to Jan Medek Marishi, the rector of the University of Prague and a friend of Barish, who then passed it on to his friend, Kirsha. We then get a letter from Marcy to Kirsha describing the previous life of the book. Quote, Reverend and distinguished sir, father in Christ. This book, bequeathed to me by an intimate friend, I destined for you, my very dear Athanasius, as soon as it came into my possession, for I was convinced that it could be read by no one except yourself. The former owner of this book asked your opinion by letter, copying and sending you a portion of the book from which he believed you would be able to read the remainder, but he at that time refused to send the book itself. To its deciphering he devoted unflagging toil, as is apparent from attempts of his which I sent to you herewith, and he relinquished hope only with his life. But his toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey none but their master, Kirsha. Except now this token, such as it is long overdue though it be, of my affection for you, and burst through its bars, if there are any, with your wanted successes. Dr. Raphael, a tutor in the Bohemian language to Ferdinand III, then King of Bohemia, told me said book belonged to Emperor Rudolf, and that he presented to the bearer who brought it him 600 ducats. He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. On this point, I suspend judgment. It is your place to define for us what view we should take thereon, to whose favours and kindness I unreservedly commit myself and remain, at your command of your reverence, Johannes Marcus Marcy of Kronland, Prague, 19th of August, 1665. Or 1666, we're not certain. End quote. So we see a travel from person to person as an object of big interest. Most of that interest seems to be derived from the repeated attempts to decipher it, but even though it was written merely a hundred years or so before, not even its original owners knew where it came from, or if they did, they didn't say. Then we lose track of the book for about 200 years or so. If this correspondence is to be believed, it was kept in the Collegio Romano, of which Kirsha was a member, now known as the Pontifical Gregorian College, until the capture of Rome by Victor Emmanuel II of Italy during the annexation of the Papal States. That's the thing to mention if you didn't know, by the way. Italy didn't used to be a whole country, it used to be separate city-states. The Catholic papacy was its own country, which survives in its form today as the Vatican City. The new Italian government confiscated books of the church's libraries, at least those outside of the Vatican, but a number of the books were spirited away to the personal libraries of the faculty, and the Voynich manuscript went into the possession of Petrus Becksch, the university rector and head of the Jesuit order at the time. It still bears his personal seal to this day, in fact. The book then went to Villa Mondragone, the private country estate owned by the Jesuit order. In 1903, the Jesuits were running out of money, and so they decided to sell off some of their books. Originally, these sales were supposed to be to the Vatican Library, to keep the texts in-house, as it were, but not all of the books went there. In 1912, Voynich picks it up, and we have our namesake. Now, for the sake of the story earlier, I dramatised it as a private auction, but I can't seem to find whether the book was auctioned off or sold on a one-to-one -one transaction. 
Either way, Voynich buys the manuscript and attempts to get it translated, which helps it enter the popular consciousness. He also got around 30 books in total in that sale, so he wasn't just looking for this one, but this one was easily the crown jewel. The next seven years of his life were spent attempting to get scholars to look into it, whilst using his extensive linguistic knowledge to try and translate it. Wilfrid Voynich dies in 1930, and the book passed to his widow Edith, herself a novelist. It remained hers until 1960 when she dies, when it goes to her close friend Anne Nill. She then sells it to Hans Krauss, the book collector, who, unable to find any other buyers, donates it to Yale, and the rest is history. Now we have a timeline, we can go through some of the main proposed candidates for who wrote this strange text. Let's start with the curveball. The idea that Voynich himself fabricated the text. This idea is generally unsupported, and I'd like to shoot it down for you because I personally don't think it's a very good idea. Whilst it would have benefited an antiquarian like Voynich to have a supposed lost codex in his possession, he would have possessed the relevant knowledge to make decent forgery, the radiocarbon dating rules that out. We know for a fact that vellum, the vellum used in the manuscript, came from the early 1400s, which would mean that Voynich would have needed to find enough 500-year-old expensive parchment to create the book, as many as 15 calfskins worth, without any trace of him getting a hold of it. From my reference, that's kind of like faking the moon landing by actually going to the moon to shoot on location. So now we know it's not a modern forgery, let's look at the proposed authors. So first up is Roger Bacon, the famed English polymath and inventor. Raphael Ninshovsky, the friend of Jan Marshy, Kirsch's friend, wrote in a letter that he'd heard through the grapevine that the book had been written by Roger Bacon, as was mentioned earlier. Bacon, for context, was an English philosopher, friar, and scholar who lived between 1219 and 1220, famous for, among other things, being the first European to transcribe the recipe for gunpowder, advocating an early form of the scientific method with repeated empirical testing, and being regarded in his day as a wizard with necromantic powers. Funny that. Voynich considered this as the front-runner theory for a long time and spent a lot of energy investigating the idea that Bacon was the author. To that end, he speculated that the English scientist and wizard John Dee, also a scientist and wizard, famed for his supposed magical services to Elizabeth I, sold the book to Rudolf of Bohemia whilst he was there. Dee supposedly had a large catalogue of Bacon's texts and was a fan. But there's basically no real evidence to confirm this other than Dee having been in Bohemia at the dates the book supposedly comes into the possession of Rudolf, which is kind of true, they were there at the same time. And we do know from his meticulous diaries and other sources that Dee loved Bacon's writings and possessed a lot of them. But if this is true, then the meticulous diaries of John Dee weaken the story as he never mentions what would surely be such an enticing and intriguing text, nor selling it for the ridiculously large sum of 600 ducats. It's like two kilograms of gold. Plus, since we know that the vellum came from the early 1400s, over a hundred years after Roger Bacon died, it's basically impossible unless Bacon was really a wizard. Italian engineer Giovanni Fontana was also considered a possible candidate. He lived in the early 1400s, was known to use ciphers in his works, plus a lot of the illustrations bear a resemble to the manuscripts. But other than this, we don't really have any other evidence to support the link. As a matter of fact, the first real confirmed person attached to the book was Georg Barash, so before him we're just going off of letters, testimony, and grapevine with almost no actual evidence. Sometime before 1921, Voynich was able to read a name faintly written at the bottom of the manuscript's first page, Jakob Artenpeche. This link is possibly a reference to Jakob Horsheki of Tepenesh, also known by his Latin name Jacobus Sinyapus. Rudolf II had ennobled him in 1607 and appointed him the imperial distiller and made him the curator of his botanical gardens as well as a personal physician. 
Voynich concluded that Jacobus owned the manuscript prior to Barash and drew a link from that to Rudolf's court, in confirmation of Minovsky's story. Jacobus's name is still clearly visible under ultraviolet lights these days. However, it doesn't match the copy of his signature in another document located by Jan Hurich in 2003. As a result, it has been suggested that the signature was added later, maybe even by Voynich himself. Although why he would do this since he seemed very personally invested in finding the genuine creator of the text seems strange. Not impossible, but strange. Moreover, if his name is written as Jacob, J-A-C-O-B-J, in reference to his Latin name, why was it also written in the Eastern manner? Why not go with the birth name Jakub, J-A-K-U-B, rather than semi-latifying it, but not going so far as to spell it J-A-C-O-B-U-S, Jacobus, as it's written in the Latin? Seems a bit weird to me. Now, Barish's letter does bear some resemblance to a hoax that Orientalist Andreas Müller once played on Kirscher. Müller sent some unintelligible texts over to Kirscher with a note explaining that they'd come from Egypt asking him to translate. Kirscher reportedly solved it, but it's been speculated that both that and this were cryptographic tricks played on Kirscher to make him look foolish. Why he would do that? I don't know. At the time, Kirscher was considered the leading expert on Egyptology, if only because nobody else knew that he was wrong, so why Mueller would doubt him is unknown, but maybe it was just a light-hearted trick. Raphael Mianovsky, the friend of Marshy, who was the reputed source of Bacon's story, was himself a cryptographer and apparently invented a cipher which he claimed to be uncrackable. This has led to the speculation that Mianovsky might have produced the Voynich manuscript as a practical demonstration of the cipher and made Barash his unwitting test subject. Indeed, the disclaimer in the Voynich manuscript cover letter could mean that Marshy suspected some kind of deception. I think the most important element to consider when attempting to discern the authorship is to first discern the root of its strangeness, the writing and the illustrations themselves. The book is written in a script that is, as of me recording this, unknown. The first main theory behind the script is that it's a cipher of some kind. This has been the working theory for most supposed translations. It's a European script of some kind, rendered unintelligible by means of a code or cipher so as to hide the information from a reader who doesn't know how to translate it. Why? Well, if it's a scientific, magical, alchemical, or philosophical codex, then maybe the author was guarding what they believed to be a carefully guarded secret. Whilst cryptography, the science and art of writing in ciphers, did exist in a form around the time of the manuscript's creation, it doesn't match any existing and contemporary ciphers that would have been in use. For instance, a substitution cipher would be excluded because of the distribution of letter frequencies not resembling any known language, while the small number of different letter shapes implies that other types of ciphers could be ruled out because they would typically employ larger cipher alphabets. Polyalphabetic ciphers were invented by Alberti, a Renaissance poet in the 1460s, but they usually yielded ciphertexts where all of the cipher shapes occur with roughly equal probability, quite unlike the language-like letter distribution that the Voynich manuscript appears to have. The presence of many tightly grouped shapes in the manuscript, such as O-R, A-R, O-L, A-N, and so on, does suggest that its cipher system may make use of what's called a verbose cipher, where single letters in plain text get inciphered into groups of fake letters. For instance, some of the letters from F15V, a first two-line passage, contain O-R-O-R-O-R in a lot of the way that Roman numerals might say C-C-C or X-X-X-X, if verbosely enciphered. That the encryption system started from a fundamentally simple cipher and then was augmented by adding nulls, meaningless symbols, homophones, duplicate symbols, transposition cipher, letter rearrangement, 
false word breaks and more is also entirely possible, which would make it much harder to crack, the idea being that not only are the letters being transcribed in a script that otherwise doesn't exist, but that they contain multiple intentional red herrings. According to the codebook cipher theory, the Voynich manuscript's words could actually be codes to be looked up in a dictionary or codebook. The main evidence for this theory is the internal structure and length and distribution of many of the words are similar to those of Roman numerals, which at the time would be a natural choice for codes. However, book-based ciphers would be viable only for short messages because they're very cumbersome to write and read with. In 1943, Joseph Martin Feely claimed that the manuscript was a scientific diary written in shorthand, Latin, but in a system of abbreviated forms not considered acceptable by other scholars. I don't buy this idea. The words have a language-esque letter distribution, which I think makes it unlikely to have been a shorthand, because even then it's usually written in a known language, and as the name implies, is shorter than regular writing. A similar theory holds that the text of the Voynich manuscript is mostly meaningless, but contains meaningful information hidden in inconspicuous details, such as, for example, the second letter of every word or the number of letters in each line. This technique, called steganography, is very old and was described by Johannes Trithemius in 1499. Though the plain text was speculated to have been extracted by a cardan grille, an overlay with cutouts for meaningful text of some sort, this seems somewhat unlikely because the words and letters aren't arranged on anything like a regular grid. Still, steganographic claims are hard to prove or disprove because stegotexts can be arbitrarily difficult to find. It has been suggested that the meaningful text could be encoded in the length or shape of certain pen strokes. There are indeed examples of steganography from about that time that would use letter shape, italic versus upright, to hide information. But when examined under high magnification, it seems to be the case that the pen strokes are quite natural. The next biggest theory comes in the form that it's a natural language of some kind. The main evidence for this is so-called word entropy, the rate at which letters and words impart information. The statistical analysis of the spread and reoccurrence of letters and words within the manuscript give it an estimated rating similar to Latin or English, causing many to believe that it's actually a different language. But it could be an invented language with an invented script. Not impossible. Famous RRs Tolkien and Martin could tell you all it takes is a little elbow grease and a working knowledge of linguistics to make your own language. You wouldn't even need to know loads of languages really, just the one you're trying to emulate and maybe a few neighbours or ancestors. Some have considered it might be a translation of an Eastern language written in an invented script. The word distribution is similar to many Asian languages, such as the Sino-Tibetan, Chinese-Tibetan-Burmese, Austroasiatic, Khmer and Vietnamese, and Thai, Thai and Laotian, language families. Many have one syllable, but rich syllable structures within words that might indicate a tonal function, as well as a similar number of repeating words, double and trice. On top of that, it's pretty well known that many people who are native readers of Latin or Arabic scripts find character-based systems hard to read. As such, it could be a transliteration into a new script, with the intention being to preserve the pronunciation, but make the reading easier going for a Western newcomer. In 1976, James R. Child of the American National Security Agency, a linguist of Indo-European language, proposed that the manuscript was written in a, quote, hitherto unknown Northern German dialect, end quote. He identified the manuscript as a skeletal syntax composed of several elements which are reminiscent of certain Germanic languages, while the content itself is expressed using, quote, a great deal of obscurity, end quote. No duh, James. In 2014, Arthur O. Tucker and Rexford H. Talbot, great names there, published a paper claiming positive identification of 37 plants, 6 animals, and 1 mineral referenced in the manuscript to plant drawings in the Labellus de Messinianus Indorum Herbis, or the Bedanius manuscript, a 15th century Aztec herbal. 
Between this and the fact that there's a tacomite in the paint, they argued that these plants were from colonial New Spain, and the writing represented the Nahuatl language. At the date, the manuscript between 1521, the conquest of the Aztecs, and around 1576, in contradiction of the radiocarbon dating of the vellum and other elements. But the vellum, whilst creation of it was dated earlier, could have just been stored and used at a later date for manuscript making. This analysis has been criticised by other Voynich manuscripts researchers, however, pointing out that among other things, a skilled forger could just construct plants that have a passing resemblance to hitherto undiscovered existing plants. In the same year of 2014, a team from the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, led by Dr. Diego Amancio, found, using a much broader system of word analysis, that the frequency and occurrence of the words in around 90% of instances in the Voynich manuscript match the frequencies of other works like the Bible. This indicates that, rather than being purely gibberish, the work has an actual meaning in an actual language, whether it's natural or constructed. On the subject of constructed languages, by the way, there is some doubt cast on that idea. It's been suggested using contemporary constructed languages such as those of John Wilkins in his 1668 book Philosophical Languages are that they are far too systematic. As such, they would have been recognised very easily as being distinct from natural language. Moreover, Wilkins' work postdates the manuscript by around 200 years, making it unlikely that somebody else created that concept before him. Then, of course, we get to the idea that it's a hoax, but not that it was created by Voynich. Some have argued that the reason it contains so many repeated words and illustrations that don't relate to anything is because it has no real meaning. Now, given that I have conflicting evidence on the statistical distribution of words that argue both ways, I'm going to go with the arguments that it's not a hoax, because there are more studies that support that conclusion and from more recently than the other way around. Plus, those studies, such as the ones from the University of Sao Paulo, were using much more modern and sophisticated methods and technologies. I acknowledge this isn't foolproof, and I'll get to that at the end of the show, and time may yet prove my prediction wrong. Finally, we have a very interesting theory, that the manuscript was created via glossolalia, speaking in tongues. Basically, glossolalia is a phenomenon whereby an individual starts uncontrollably spouting gibberish. Some consider these incidents to be signs of a divine deity, others consider them to be simply mental health incidents. Modern science supports the latter conclusion, but medieval superstition supported the former conclusion. As such, the author could have been writing in a language of their own devising on the supposed instruction of a higher power, the illustrations therefore being a form of outsider art, art produced by someone who's not actually an artist. Where they got the vellum for it, I couldn't tell you. Vellum, especially in those days, was real expensive. Maybe it was a monk whose work was divinely inspired? But then, why hide the work from the world and cover it in secrecy? This also accounts, by the way, I think against the hoax idea, simply because it's an expensive hoax to pull off in those days and these days. It doesn't rule it out entirely, high spirits do prompt spending, but it just makes it less likely. Whilst I disagree with the conclusions of two authors, Kennedy and Churchill, in their work on the text that the work is a forgery or a hoax, I do agree with the idea they posit that if the work is genuine, the writer was likely influenced by some kind of mental disturbance or delusion. So what's the deal with the Voynich Manuscript? I really can't say. I remember a year or so ago when the work was finally deciphered. I remember the time before that too, and the time before that. Nobody can agree on what the work is, so I can only ever really pin a tail on a donkey here. My best guess? It's genuine, at least at the time period. If it's a fake, it was a fake by someone who lived, let's say, between 1390 and 1550 in a massively rough and expansive time gap. Someone who had access to expensive vellum needed to make it back when it was expensive, but not uncommon. 
I think a modern person wouldn't have been able to find that much antique vellum and be so predisposed with making this text that they would waste it like that. If it is an ancient forgery, my question is why? I think it's entirely plausible that somebody like John Dee forged it, sold it to Rudolph for a serious pretty penny, 600 gold ducats, passing it off as a bacon original. But Dee had a reputation to uphold, and it's no good selling people magical tomes they can't read. Could have been an Emperor's New Clothes scenario, wherein the court of Rudolph would never admit not being able to read it, but given that the king paid serious cash for it, if we believe the supposed history, I find that unlikely. So let's say some medieval person writes this book for scientific purposes. Why write in this language? I'm almost 100% certain that it's not an undiscovered language merely because today we know so many languages, including dead languages. It's not to say that our language knowledge is infallible, but I think if there was a civilization whose script was so complex and written down in a vellum codex, but we know nothing of them or their language and have no corroborations from their neighboring civilizations and no explanations as to how the book was made, I think a bridge too far. The Celts didn't have a written language and we know lots about their history from oral traditions, contemporary accounts, with a pinch of salt because they were written by the Romans, and archaeology. It could well be a cipher, but it would have taken lots of effort to make such an incredibly complex cipher, and why? Well, the person who was recording it must have intended it to never be read by anyone, which is a seriously strange motivation. But again, not impossible. Francisco de Goya, the Spanish painter, made a series of paintings he never intended people to see, found in his house only after his death, and the now-famous author Franz Kafka asked his friend to posthumously burn his unpublished works, so I would say there is some kind of precedent to that idea. You'll notice I haven't gone into the claims of the work being deciphered, and that's because I just don't get a consensus. The latest claim comes from this year, 2019, but after the University of Bristol disavowed the article claiming an accurate translation, and the massive backlash from the historical community, I've got to throw it on the pile. For now, at least. And that's the message of today's show. What a segue to quote one of my favourite TV shows, Science is a liar. Sometimes. Aristotle believed that the sun revolved around the earth, Galen believed in the four humours, Isaac Newton was obsessed with alchemy, and Einstein believed that the universe was static. All great thinkers, all wrong, on some level. And that's okay. The great thing about the scientific method that Roger Bacon loves so much is that it changes its view based on what's observed, rather than the superstitious method of believing everything that's written down before you verbatim and never questioning it, you go out there and you actually collect evidence, do research, and draw conclusions. It's a far better system. But it can sometimes be wrong, and it's important that you realise when you've made a mistake so that you don't double down on it, because that's just as dogmatic as the belief of any uninformed fundamentalist. So I can't in good faith tell you that any of the current theories, even the frontrunners on the Voynich Manuscript, are correct simply because they've all been so wrong before and we're so far from finding a solution. Maybe one of the listeners of this will be the one to find the key that unlocks this centuries-old sphinx, and that'd be great. But unlike the Mary Celeste or the Franklin Expedition or Troy or any of our other mysteries, we're just way too far out yet to make an accurate call on this one. My opinion, which I'd like to state is fully an opinion, I think the author thought what they were writing was genuine. A mentally deranged monk or a scholar who wrote a text that they believe served a purpose, literate enough to use their inspiration to write in a fake language that looks like a real one, but for some actual reason rather than just for the lark of it. But I have absolutely no way to substantiate that, that's just an educated guess. Decently educated given the research I've done on this, but a guess nonetheless. And there you have it. I await with bated breath any and all updates on the Voynich Manuscript. 
This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.